0: Amen. Daniel chapter nine. Beginning in verse 20. It says, Now, while I was speaking, praying and confessing my sin. And the sin of my people, Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord, my God, for the holy mountain of my God. Yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. And he informed me. And talked with me and said, oh, Daniel, I've now come forth to give you skill to understand at the beginning of your supplications. The command went out and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy and anoint the most holy. Know, therefore, and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built. Again, in the wall, even in troublesome times, and after 62 weeks, Messiah shall be karot, says in the Hebrew, cut off. It also can be translated executed, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood, and till the end of the war, desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate. Even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. It was Sir Isaac Newton who is most famous and credited for the discovery and the explanation of gravity. He devoted much of his mental and physical energy to the study of the Bible. Many of you know that and particularly a Bible prophecy. The vast majority of his gigantic intellect was devoted to the Bible and Bible prophecy. And he said that at about the end of time there would be a body of men who would grow up and they would turn their attention to the prophecies of the Word of God and they would insist upon the literal interpretation in the midst of much clamor and resistance, the idea being there would be people who would say this is nonsense. But Chapter 9 becomes what many Bible teachers and Bible scholars call the backbone of biblical prophecy. This is truly the skeleton whereby we are able to understand God's plan. Now, chapter 9, so far we've seen, moves from insight in verses 1 and 2 to intercession, verses 3 through 19, to instruction. And that's what we... Look at in verses 20 through 27, the chapter begins with Daniel learning about the plan of God and then praying for the mercy concerning the plan of God. And now Daniel will receive instruction, revelation from a supernatural source concerning God's timetable for the future. Remember, the book of Daniel has. Largely been devoted to a series of dreams and visions as God has unfolded to Daniel, the future of human civilization and the Gentile world. Now, God's focus will be on the Jew and on Israel. And you'll remember, Daniel was studying the Bible. And as he was studying He was reading Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 10, where he read these words, For thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. And when Daniel read those words, he believed the prophecy literally. That it wasn't metaphorical or allegorical, but that a seasons of seventies, of a, a series of circumstances were going to take place that were going to result in the return of the children of Israel. So Daniel reads the prophecy. He rereads the prophecy concerning the Babylonian captivity. He reads and he rereads the release and the return of the Jewish people to the land. And the first course of action. When he reads about this prophecy as he begins to pray and you know what he prays he prays that the prophecy will literally come true isn't that interesting is that what you do when you read the Bible there are over 300 prophecies associated with the first coming of Jesus most Bible scholars believe that there are roughly twice that many concerning the second coming of Jesus. And so, we now have a way of hanging on to the prophecy as we begin to understand the sense. And it begins with the setting of the prophecy. Look in verse 20 again. It says, And while I was speaking, praying, Confessing my sin and the sin of my people, Israel, and presenting my supplications before the Lord, my God, for the holy mountain of my God, the holy mountain of his God, I think is a reference to the city of Jerusalem and Mount Zion. And the prophecy becomes God's answer to Daniel's prayer. He is praying and even look what it says. While I was speaking, praying, confessing my sin, the sin of my people, presenting my supplication before the Lord, even in the midst of it, the angel shows up. And in verse 21, it says, yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering now. While Daniel is praying, even while he is praying, he's interrupted by an angel. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? You are in your study, or you're in your quiet place. You have your place where you go, where you pray. I, I typically will go into my office and I'll go into my study and I'll pray. Can you imagine while you're praying, all of a sudden you feel this, dude? I'm praying. Okay, relax. It's the angel of the Lord. Angel, can't you see I'm here praying? Now, you understand what's happening. Even as he's praying, God is answering his prayer. And Daniel identifies the angel as Gabriel. Now, that's going to be a familiar angelic being because he appears throughout the Bible and always in the context of a messianic announcement. You'll remember in the New Testament, this is the angel who appears to Mary. And announces the news that she's going to give birth to the Savior. And it says, he he uses the expression ish, which is the Hebrew word for man. He says the man, some would argue that that Hebrew term doesn't necessarily mean man, but in the right context, it can mean servant. So does the angel appear in human form or in servant form? I actually don't know the answer other than the angel is clearly there. And while he is praying, the evening offering, by the time, by the way, is the time observant Jews would set aside to pray. Many of you know that Jews would pray at 9 o'clock in the morning and they would pray at three o'clock in the afternoon and three o'clock in the afternoon was the time of what was known as the evening oblation or the evening sacrifice. Observant Jews would gather together. They would stop what they're doing at three o'clock. Did it ever occur to you? There seems to be strong evidence that Jesus. Began the journey on the cross at nine o'clock in the morning. And that he was nailed to the cross at three o'clock in the afternoon. Some Bible scholars would even go so far as to say that Abel at three o'clock in the afternoon offered a sacrifice. Abraham at three o'clock in the afternoon drags Isaac to Mount Moriah. At three o'clock in the afternoon, prophets in every generation would pray. Now, this is interesting. Those of you who have been following along in our study of the book of Daniel, how old was Daniel when he left Jerusalem, was taken captive and then transported to Babylon? Who remembers? It's been, he was just a teenager. So he's been there 50 years, 60 possible years. And by the way, I want you to think carefully for a moment. For almost 70 years, the tangible, visible temple has been gone. Jerusalem has been destroyed. The priests are no longer offering sacrifices. The holy observances are gone. Organized religion is gone. But in captivity, Daniel continues to pray, to observe. To mark those things that observant people have marked, faithful people have marked in every generation. When your husband, when your wife, when your children, when even your church isn't praying, are you? When the culture around you collapses and the religious institutions cave in, do you? Will you pray? And will you read your Bible? If no one else does? And so Daniel does. And it's interesting to me. Dr. Arno Gabelin said that he once recited Daniel's prayer from chap- from verse one all the way to verse 19 in the Hebrew language. It said it took him all of three minutes. And then he calculated the time that Daniel began to pray, which is when we are told that. That's when the angel began his flight. So when we go all the way back to the beginning of Daniel chapter nine and we go to verse one, remember where it says it's the first year of Darius and it says in the first year of his reign, verse three, he sets his face. He begins to pray from that moment, the moment he opens his mouth, God sends Gabriel on this mission. So Dr. Gabelin said. According to my calculations, it took the angel three minutes to fly from heaven to the earth. Pretty good time. Angels aren't omnipresent. Angels, unlike God, can't be everywhere at once. Angels are created beings. Angels obey and submit to God. And in verse 23, it says, at the beginning of your supplications, the command went out and I've come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. Isn't that good news? The angel shows up and says, hey, you know what? People in heaven are pretty fond of you, Daniel. By the way, that expression greatly beloved is used of also a New Testament character. Do you remember which one? the Apostle John. Remember, he is called the beloved Apostle. And so here we have the beloved Daniel, the prophet who receives a revelation, if you will, concerning the unfolding of human history. And John receives a revelation in the New Testament. Both Daniel and John are given secrets Prophetic revelations based on what appears to be two things I'm going to suggest to you. Why does God reveal himself in this way, this special way to Daniel? And why does God, in the way that's outlined in the New Testament, in the book of Revelation, reveal himself to John? I'm going to suggest two things. Number one. It's going to sound odd, but I think it's. As simple as affection. God has a great deal of affection, both for Daniel and for John. But I'm going to suggest another thing. It's an affection that's been cultivated by an extraordinary life of prayer, submission, and obedience to the God of heaven. When we look at the character of Daniel in the Old Testament, and we look at the character of John, In the New Testament, we see this shining character of men who pour over the things of God, the word of God, the promises of God and the plan of God. And they want to be a part of that plan. Daniel wants to know what's going to happen to his people. And so God will tell Daniel. Not simply the truth about the prophecy that they're going to return to the land, but in the midst of the unfolding of human history, God begins to reveal not just the short-term plans that He has for Israel, but for the plans that He has for Israel in every generation till the end of time. So, you'll remember... Often when we ask God for things, God certainly wants to speak to you. But did it ever occur to you that God wants to tell you so much more? He wants to be involved in your life so much more. There's so much more that God wants to do as He becomes included in your life. And so again, Many Jews were waiting for the Messiah. And even to this very day, if you talk to an observant Jew, they are waiting for the Messiah. We're not looking for Messiah's coming. We're looking for his second coming. The coming of Jesus was a matter of historical fact. But the second coming in many people's minds is somewhat of a theological fiction. But make no mistake about it. As certain as the plans unfolded for the coming of Christ, the unfolding is going to take place in a complete way. Look again in verse 24. Look what it says. Seventy. Weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, to anoint the most holy. Now, verse 24 explains, explains, if you will. The scope of the prophecy. So I'm going to give you just a brief summation rather quickly. It's like a summary statement. In verse 25, we're given information about the first 69 weeks of Daniel's 70 weeks. In verse 26 we understand that there is a gap, a parenthesis, if you will. And in this parenthesis between the secession of the 69th week and the beginning of the 70th week, there is this empty spot, this gap. And I believe that we are in that gap right at this very moment. And in verse 27, it deals with the unfolding of the information that's going to take place in the 70th week of Daniel. Now, the term week means a grouping of seven. It's the Hebrew word Shabuim. We have a similar word in our language. It's a descriptor. For instance, if I said to you a dozen, how many is a dozen? Twelve. Now, when I say I have a dozen, you might say, dozen what? Dozen eggs? Oh, that's right. You work with the police. A dozen donuts. By simply saying dozen, we don't understand exactly what he's talking about. But again, we know that he's talking about a grouping. A grouping of seven. And so it says a grouping of seven, seventy, hatat. In the Hebrew language, it's the word which means determined, reckoned, counted. It is. It's a specific word that you would use when you're counting something out in mathematical terms, almost or in accounting terms. So the verse literally reads seventy sevens determined, counted, reckoned. So what kind of sevens are these and I'm going to suggest to you that all of the evidence both internally and historically and prophetically seem to refer to years. And the reason why, remember, for those of you who have been following along in our study of Daniel, remember the reason why the Jews are in captivity. The reason why they are in rebellion and disobedience. They refuse to honor the Sabbaths of the God. God remember, the Lord had a statement that was given in Leviticus chapter 25. Six years you shall sow your field. In six years you shall prune your vineyard, gather its fruit. But in the 70th year, or in the seventh year, there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall neither sow your field nor prune your vineyard. And for 70 consecutive seasons of seven, that is for 490 years, they ignored the commandment. And they were taken into captivity. And as they were taken into captivity, God was going to fulfill what he had written about in Leviticus. And then in Leviticus chapter 25, verses 8 through 9, it speaks of seven times seven years and then a 50th year. And many of you are familiar with that concept. It's the year of Jubilee. That's right. Every 50 years, debts were settled. Properties were restored. Reconciliation was made. It was a time of redemption. And remember in verse 2, Of this chapter, Daniel writes, he says, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet. So I'm going to suggest to you, even as the revelation is made and even as the statements are beginning to be made, Daniel understands that they're not talking about seasons, but years. And there's another note that I just want to bring to your attention while I'm thinking about it. One of the principles in the scripture is. If you don't give what belongs to God. He'll take it. Now that might sound a little draconian and a little dramatic. You may think, you know, God doesn't really need my five bucks. God doesn't doesn't care if I give. God doesn't miss my offering. God doesn't miss my sacrifice. God doesn't miss my financial gift. Look. Look. It isn't about sacrifice, financial gift, or offering. It's about a commitment that you make between you and the Lord. And have you noticed that when you don't give it to the Lord, the Lord finds other ways to take it from you? That's part of the point. The difference, of course, is you're simply denied the privilege, the great privilege of ministering and giving. Now, The weeks, like I said, are groupings of years and most ancient calendars, whether lunar or solar, were based on 360 days. The Assyrians, the Chaldeans, the Egyptians, the Hebrews, the Persians, the Greeks, the Phoenicians, the Chinese. When Mary and I went to the Yucatan Peninsula last month and we went into the jungles and we go to the pyramid of Chichen Itza, the guide who was a Mayan was telling us about the Mayan calendar, how they had one solar calendar and they had one lunar calendar. And it was based on the groupings of 360 of 12 30 day cycles in ancient Chaldea. Their calendar was based on a 360 day year. And it's from that tradition that if you think about it, how many degrees are in a circle? Three hundred and sixty. How many minutes are in an hour? How many seconds are in a minute? Time is reckoned from the Chaldean calendar. Now, get your little marker out if you can. If you have your little Daniel bookmarker, your 70 weeks of Daniel, I want you to get it out just for a second. Because we're going to do a thought experiment. This thought experiment wasn't conceived by me. It was conceived by, of all people, C.S. Lewis. Some of you are familiar with C.S. Lewis. But he once used this illustration to illustrate eternity. Now, you'll remember on your little 70 weeks of 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 Daniel, If you go all the way to the left where it says the 70 weeks of Daniel, you go all the way of left. You'll see there's a a little space called before time. And then you see Adam and you see Abraham and you see the first coming of Jesus. You see Paul. You see the second coming of Jesus. And at the end of the little uh, of your little bookmarker, you see after time. Now, on the line that says before time, now we're going to do our thought experiment. You can all look at me just for a moment. And as everyone is looking at me now, you can either close your eyes or keep your eyes open. Whatever works best for you for a thought experiment. But I want you to imagine a piece of paper. The paper is absolutely white. And the paper goes not just from left to right, but from top to bottom. The paper extends in every direction. The paper extends in every direction and it goes in every direction and it occupies all of the space that you can see on 360 degrees. Imagine a piece of paper that's 360 degrees. It goes in every direction, and it goes forever. Now imagine that you have a pencil. The pencil places itself on the piece of paper. The moment that the pencil places itself on the piece of paper, that represents time. We now enter into time. And as we enter into time, the pencil makes a mark. And as the pencil makes a mark, you lift the pencil from the page and now time disappears from the time that the pencil was put on the page. to the time that the pencil left the page, that's your bookmarker. But all of the rest of eternity is contained in all of the places where the pencil never was. And just like the pencil creates a carbon spot with a beginning, with a middle and with an end, we are like little tiny carbon spots in this thing called eternity. And so God sets aside a particular place that you and I call eternity that goes from Adam to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Judah, David. We fast forward through the times of, of, the, of the captivity, and we find ourselves in the place of Daniel. Now, the reason why this becomes an important thing is the Lord appears to cut out, like I said, 490 years of human history to deal with the Jews. Now, I want you to think for just a moment. God has been preparing a people. He does so in Adam. He does so in Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. He has dealt with the Jews through the time of Solomon. And on through history. But now he says, I am going to set aside 490 years of human history to deal with the Jews and to deal with Jerusalem. And so it begins with the focus of the period, the features of the period. And then the confirmation of the scriptures and the consecration of the sanctuary. Who or what will be the object of this prophecy? That's the first question we ask. We see it. Look, look, read it for yourself. For your people and your holy city. Who are Daniel's people? The Jews. Daniel is a Jew. His people are Jews. What is Daniel's holy city? Jerusalem, it's not Babylon, even though it's destroyed. The object of the prophecy, listen carefully, is Israel. The object of the prophecy are the Jews and Jerusalem. This is not a prophecy about the church. This is not a prophecy about the world of the Gentiles. But the prophecy has significance for the Gentiles and it has significance for the church. By the way, in the Bible, Israel is never called the church. In Galatians chapter six, verse 16, Paul writing says, and as many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy upon them and upon the Israel of God. The Israel of God is not the church. It's the Jewish people. And it would appear that God has two clocks, one for the Jew and one for the church. Now, does anyone here play chess? Anyone at all? A few of you. If you play chess, often in a chess match, you'll have an opponent. You'll have one person and another person and across the board. And with each person, there also has a clock. And so when a person is making a move, they press their clock and then they press the clock again. They stop the clock once they've made the move. And then you go to the second person and they have a second clock and they hit the clock. They make their move. And then when they're finished with their move, they punch the clock again. I'm going to suggest to you that the clock, the prophetic clock that God has is very much like that. You have the world of human beings apart from God, the Gentiles, and you have the covenant people, the Jews, and there is a clock. And as he presses the clock, you'll note something. The Lord reveals to Daniel the unfolding of the prophetic program for Israel. And there are six major items. Number one, to finish the transgression. Number two, to make an end of sins. That is in a judicial sense, to accomplish on the cross of Calvary. Um, and, and then number three, to make a reconciliation for iniquity. Number four, to bring an everlasting righteousness. Number five, to seal up or close up the authority of the vision. And number six, to anoint, it says in the Hebrew, Godesh, Godeshim, The holy of holies. And so again, when we think about it and we we look at those things and we go, okay, to finish transgression. If to finish transgression means anything at all, it means to put an end to man's rebellion. It means to establish a new order on the earth. Number two, to put an end to sin. That means to establish a new and a just society where righteousness triumphs. And number three, to atone for wickedness. That means to accomplish through the Messiah's self-sacrifice the atonement that makes forgiveness possible number four to bring in everlasting righteousness that means to permanently establish a society in which justice and righteousness and holiness mark every relationship number five to seal up vision and prophecy that is to see the fulfillment of all of the visions All of the predictions, both of the Old Testament and the prophets. And number six, to anoint the most holy, that is to consecrate the Messiah or the temple of God, that is to officially inaugurate the rule of God on the earth. Now, of those six, how many of them have happened? The answer is zero. Good for you. I love it when you put your little Bible prophecy hats on. Now, the reason why all of that becomes important is because in God's prophetic plan, He must do all of those things. The reason why this becomes important, just like I said to you, God has set aside 490 years God has set aside a certain amount of years for you. And he will accomplish his plan. And so we look at the first period. Look at verse 25. Know therefore and understand. Now, I need you to get this. Even if it means you have to underline it or whatever it is that you do in order to try to remember things. Know therefore and understand. The reason why even that simple statement becomes important to you It doesn't say don't know and be filled with misunderstanding. Listen carefully to what I'm saying. The book of Daniel and the prophecy of Daniel wasn't written to confuse you. It wasn't written to mess you up. It wasn't written in such a way that you were supposed to be filled with all kinds of weirdness. It says, know therefore, and understand. Clearly, the implication that the angel gives to Daniel isn't, hey, look, I want to create a mechanism where you're thinking, I wish to God the angel had never shown up. No, there's a rhyme and a reason to what's happening. And then he says that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah, the prince, there shall be note seven sevens. And sixty two sevens the street shall be built again and the wall, even in troublesome times. So here's the question that you should ask. When was the clock scheduled to start ticking? When does the clock begin? When does God press The clock as it relates to Israel and Jerusalem. It was to begin with the command to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, not the rebuilding of the temple. It says to restore and build Jerusalem. And then it talks about the street shall be built in the original language. It speaks of the open spaces and the wall, believe it or not. The wall is an interesting Hebrew word because it is a word that can also mean embankment, fortification. It can even be translated a trench because you remember in the ancient world, they would they would build a wall one of two ways. They would either take bricks or wood or stone and they would build a wall or they would take a, a flat piece of dirt and they would dig a trench. And in the digging of that trench, they create a wall. Now, I need you to understand something. The first two chapters of Nehemiah inform us that this command was issued in the 20th reign of Artaxerxes Longeminus. That is, we are told in the first two chapters of Nehemiah when this takes place and the Encyclopedia Britannica sets the date as March 14th 445 B.C. Now, remember, the prophecy of Daniel, the ninth chapter of Daniel, refers to a time 538 B.C. Now, remember, B.C. goes backwards. So you go from 538 to 537 to 536. And when you close the gap, you can see that the prophecy is taking place literally generations before March 14th, 445 B.C. Now, why are there three distinct time periods during the 70 weeks? I'm going to tell you. Look at verse 25. There are 69 weeks of years that from the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. By the way, I need to help you with something. There are four rebuilding decrees. Cyrus says, go back and build the temple. 537 B.C. That's found in Ezra chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Darius says, go back, build the temple. Ezra 6, 1. Artaxerxes says, go back. 458 B.C. Ezra chapter 7, verse 11. Artaxerxes, 445 B.C., Nehemiah chapter 2 verses 5 through 8. Nehemiah chapter 17 verses 18. Now, the reason why I'm bringing all of this up is the decree number one and the decree number two and the decree number three were to rebuild the temple. Only the last one was to rebuild the city and the walls. The reason why this becomes important is because what we're about to discover. Why seven plus sixty two? And what is again, even if you're really bad at math. What is 7 plus 62? 69, yeah, this is not tough. Is this to have time to rebuild the city? Is this because this is the time that's going to need to close the canon of the New Testament to provide for the period between the Testaments? Here's what the prophecy says. Until Messiah Nagid. Until Messiah Nagid. And by the way, Messiah or Nagid means the prince. The prediction is to the presentation of the Messiah, not to the coming of the Messiah, but to the presentation and Messiah, Prince or King Nagid. The first time that that expression is ever used in the Bible, it refers to Saul, the first king of Israel. Several times in the New Testament, you'll remember Individuals tried to make Jesus king. You'll remember during the earthly ministry, and we've been studying it in the Gospel of John. In John chapter 6, verse 15, in John chapter 7, verse 30, in John chapter 7, verse 44. Over and over again, they sort of rush Jesus and say, Jesus, we want you to be the king, we want you to be the king, we want you to be the king. And he resists every single time. He says, Mine hour is not yet come. The one and only day that Jesus allows himself to be called king is the day that he arranges. The Bible calls it the triumphal entry. And all the four gospels record the event in Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 9, in Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 10, in Luke chapter 19, verses 29 through 39, in John chapter 12, verses 12 through 6. And the day of the triumphal entry is recorded definitively. It is the 10th day of the month of Nisan. Not the car. The Hebrew month Nisan. The Pharisees and religious leaders bring that to our attention because they quote Hallel, Psalm one eighteen twenty six. This is the Psalms of ascent in Psalm one eighteen twenty six, it says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Remember, Hosanna, Hosanna. And that was always sung on the 10th day of Nisan. And by the way, every Jew, every observant Jew on the 10th day of Nisan would take everyone a lamb. Jesus deliberately arranges to fulfill Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. This day, this one day, this day only, does Jesus allow himself to be called king. As a matter of fact, then Jesus makes them responsible to recognize that day. In in Luke 19, verses 41 through 44, He actually holds the religious leaders accountable and said, you should have known this. You should have known this. You are the doctors and the scholars. You're the ones who read the Bible and teach the people. And this is the 10th day of Nisan prior to the Passover of the 14th day of Nisan. Nisan. And again, that's how we know that the date falls on the calendar date that you and I would call April 6th. Other examples of precise dates would include Genesis chapter 8, verse 4. And so again, do the 70 weeks run in an unbroken secession? The answer is no. One of the things that people get sometimes stumbled over is how does the clock start and how does the clock stop? And are there examples in the Bible of a prophetic clock starting and stopping? Would you like to hear a couple of examples of that? Do you remember in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7? In the first part of verse 6, there's a gap of at least 20 centuries separated by a colon. In, in Isaiah chapter 9, it says, For unto us a, a child is given. Or a son is given. And then that refers to the incarnation of Jesus. And then it's got colon. The government shall be upon his shoulders. Between the birth of Jesus and the government being on the shoulders of the Messiah is thousands of years. Was the government ever on the shoulders of Jesus? Not yet. Will they be? One day. Or Zechariah chapter 9 verse 9. In verse 9, there's a clear reference to the triumphal entry of our Lord. But verse 10 looks at Jesus ruling in the millennial kingdom. Isaiah 61 verses 1 and 2. In verse 2 of the passage, Jesus' earthly ministry, remember when He begins His ministry and He's speaking at the synagogue in Capernaum. You remember, He's quoting from the book of Isaiah and He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to set the captives free. As a matter of fact, He says to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And He stops. But the very next sentence says, and to declare the day of vengeance. Did Jesus declare the day of vengeance in his earthly ministry? No. It was separated by a comma. Now look again in verse 26. And after 62 sevens. Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself, and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end of it shall be with a flood, until the end of the war desolations are determined. After the sixty-ninth week, but before the seventieth week, Messiah is killed. The word is kerot in the Hebrew. It means executed, but not for himself. That is the Messiah, the Messiah. The Messiah is executed, but he's not executed for himself, but in 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 a substitutionary atonement. He's killed for some reason, and this reason seems to be you and I. And by the way, the people of the prince who will come, that was Titus Vespasian, and he came some 38 years later, not three and a half years later. And so there's a gap. Clearly required by verse 26, 38 years are included in the gap, and an additional 19 years have transpired. And so when does the period end? Again, there's two historical things that are listed in verse 26. The first is the death of the Messiah. Edward Pusey wrote, quote, the word never meant anything but excision, death directly inflicted by God or a violent death at the hands of man. It was never A mere death or natural causes. John Phillips writes, from the signing of the decree to the cutting off of the Messiah, it was to be a period of seven plus sixty two. That's sixty nine times seven. That's four hundred and eighty three years. And again, John Phillips writes, Probably the most convincing attempt to calculate the countdown from the signing of the decree to the death of Christ is that of Sir Robert Anderson. By the way, the Queen of England knighted him for his calculations. He he wrote a book, The Coming Prince. He put the edict for rebuilding the city as the first of Nissan. 445 BC from, the, from that date to the Messiah, the prince was to be 69 times 7, 483 years. The Hebrews used a 360 day calendar. So, again, if you've got your calculator. Get it out. 483 years times 360 days equals 173,880 days. One hundred and seventy three thousand eight hundred and eighty days. Sir Robert's calculations show that from the first of Nisan, four hundred and forty five B.C. to the end of one hundred and seventy three thousand eight hundred and eighty days brings you to the tenth of Nisan in the 18th year of the rule of Tiberius. The day that Jesus enters into Jerusalem and his triumphal entry. Not a day sooner, not a day later, within a week, he's cut off, executed, crucified. And again, the only thing that he left behind were the clothes on his back. And the Romans took that. Again, John Phillips writes, the greatest calamity that could overtake a man in this life from the point of view of a Jew was living in Bible times was to die before he could be married and have children to carry on his name. Jesus is cut off from life. He leaves no family, no human successor, no name to carry on. The clause not for himself is rendered. He shall have nothing. In the Hebrew, it can also mean he will leave nothing behind. Isn't that interesting? Because Jesus needs no successor. He will rise from the dead. He'll surprise everyone. Again, John Phillips writes that crucial 10 of Nisan marked a turning point in the fortunes of the of the Jewish people. They rejected Christ. And God rejected them. And there began a long interval during which God has stopped the prophetic clock between the 69th week and the 70th week of the prophecy is inserted this parentheses. We can express it this way. Seven plus 62 equals 69 plus one each of the 69 days have been literally and specifically fulfilled but there's an outstanding day there's seven unfinished years and that's where the controversy comes in why didn't Daniel see this Why didn't Daniel see the church age? Why didn't any of the prophets? It could be argued that, well, God would embrace the Gentiles. But what about the Jew? How is it possible that they didn't see it? And so now Paul, in writing in the New Testament, says it wasn't revealed. But it was revealed to me. And so Paul begins to talk about the plan of God and the purpose of God. By the way, what should a Christian's view of Israel be? There's a lot of different ideas and thoughts and opinions. Question. Can a person enter into a right relationship with God apart from Jesus Christ? The answer is no. But I'm going to suggest something to you. That God has unfinished business with the Jew. Now, I've long personally puzzled over the destruction of the temple in the context of the 70 weeks. It's a matter of historical fact that the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. by the advancing armies of Titus Vespasianus. There's this other situation. It's the physical ethnic return of Israel to the land. The destruction doesn't seem to fit the prophetic Timetable. The first destruction of the temple was effective in scattering the Jews. Again, John Phillips writes the Romans fell on the survivors with a savage rage. Those who were living in Jerusalem had held out against enormous odds. Jews were crucified by the thousands. The death toll was over a million. Multitudes marched into slavery and into the arena. The end thereof was indeed like a flood, and the desolations complete. In 8135, when the Bar Kokhba rebellion broke out, the people of the prince that shall come, referring to the Romans under Christ, was crucified. Completed the work of destruction. But Phillips is wrong. The Bar Kokhba revolt began in 131 and it ended in 135 and the destruction was less than complete because the city of Jerusalem was later rebuilt as Aelia Capitolina. They banned the Jews from coming anywhere near there and then all of a sudden Jews came back from everywhere and on March 14th, 1948, here you have the reestablishment of a people and a nation that hadn't existed since the Bible times. So, how are we to understand this? In verse 27, it says, Then he, I believe, that he now transports into a future. He's talked about Messiah the Prince, but then it says, Then he. I suspect that in verse 27 it's speaking of a different he, it's speaking of a different prince, it's speaking of an antichrist. He shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week he shall bring an end to the sacrifice and offering. In other words, there is a seven, there's a future seven, and in that future seven there will be a covenant in that future seven and in that covenant, there will be an antichrist. He will bring an end to sacrifice and offering. Truly, Antiochus Epiphanes later just uh, had will later in the rebuilt temple bring an end to the to the sacrifice and the offering. But it doesn't sit seem to fit the prophetic facts concerning how God is working. It says, And on the wing of abomination shall one who makes desolate even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. Jesus Jesus actually gives us the one clue that we have to try to understand what that means. You know where it's found? In Matthew chapter 24, verse 15. In Matthew chapter 24 verse 15 Jesus himself says therefore when you see when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the plate in the holy place whoever reads this let him understand Jesus in Matthew 24:15 says therefore when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet when Jesus is speaking those words is he talking about seeing the abomination of desolation which took place almost 200 years earlier under Antiochus Epiphanes. No. Is he speaking of a future event when Titus and Vespasian come in and they destroy Jerusalem and the temple is destroyed and the curtain is burned and, and, and the sacrifices cease? I suspect not. The reason why is because there's 38 years between the death and the resurrection of Jesus and the destruction of the temple. I believe that this can only mean one thing. And that is that a temple is built in Jerusalem in the future. But in order for the temple to be built in the future, the Jews would have to be in the land. And in order for the Jews to be in the land from the time of the destruction of the temple until May 14, 1948, if you were to ask anyone and you were to say to them, in your wildest imaginations, can you imagine circumstances in which Israel is reborn? People would laugh. The first period lasts 49 years or 7 weeks, from 445 BC to 39 BC. The second period lasts 62 weeks or 434 years. It extends from 396 BC to AD 32. And the third period, the timeout, has lasted almost 200 years, and there's a gap between the 69th and the 70th week, empty. God has cut out 490 years. 483 of those years are already taken. And there remains seven years to fulfill. To finish the transgression. To put an end to sin. To atone for wickedness. To bring in everlasting righteousness. To seal up vision and prophecy to anoint the most holy. What will make the clock go back on? My answer might shock you. I have no idea. But let me just give you somewhat of a clue. The clock will start ticking again. Once the plan and the purpose of God concerning the Gentiles is over with. Somewhere. Somewhere. Somewhere there is a person. Somewhere in America or Central America or South America. Somewhere in Europe or Asia or Africa. Somewhere in Australia or New Zealand. Somewhere there is a person. The last person. The last person who will hear the gospel, who will hear the story of Jesus, who will hear the message of hope and the Holy Spirit will convict their heart and they'll receive Christ as their Lord and their Savior. Somewhere there's a person who will accept the Lord and the clock will stop and I believe there's going to be a rapture. A taking away, a catching away of the Church of Jesus Christ, and will that catching away of the Church of Jesus Christ spoken of in First Thessalonians chapter four, verses eighteen through thirty-two. Spoken of in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, this final, this terminus, this generation that, that that finally comes to an end. There is a final person in that final generation and the church of Jesus Christ disappears. Will that be the catalyst that will turn the clock back on? I'll be honest with you. I have no idea. Because there doesn't seem to be any biblical evidence that it is the rapture that makes the clock start ticking. Is it possible that there could be yet another time period between the rapture and when the final seven years unfold according to God's prophetic time clock? Possible. We'll talk more about it. But the little outline is on the bookmark. So here's what you do. You take your little bookmark, you put it in Daniel chapter 9, close your book, and we'll talk about it some more later. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, clearly, Lord, the Bible is amazing in its specificity, in its exactness. That there's not one day that escapes your prophetic notice. There is not one hour. There is not one minute that goes by, but that you aren't completely and perfectly and profoundly aware of it. And that you're at work. Saving men and women. Telling them the story of Jesus. Knocking on people's hearts. You've set aside a certain time for humanity and you've set a certain time aside for Israel and you've set a certain time aside for those nations. You've even set a certain time aside for the church. And Lord, you've set a certain time aside for every person within the sound of my voice. The clock is ticking and 10 years have gone by and 30 years have gone by and 50 years have gone by and for some 70 years have gone by. You've set aside time so that we would realize our sinfulness in your love, so that we would repent of our sin and turn to you in submission and humility. You've set aside time so that we wouldn't reject you, but that we would accept you. You've set aside time so that we would believe the promises and not reject the promises. You've set aside time. Lord, I remember what Charlie Peacock used to sing. Time is a gift of love and grace. Without time, there would be no time to become humbled and broken and submitted to You. Lord, You've given each and every one of us enough time to turn from our sin and to turn to Jesus as Savior. And Lord, I pray that that's exactly what we would do. In Jesus' name, amen.